0: This year as part of the Vintage Podcast we've helped you travel through time, through space but this month we're going to help you to be in two places at the same time. Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. Now, we all know how it is. You look through the events pages of a newspaper or magazine and you think, I want to see that, I want to see that, but I can't see them all at the same time leave it to us. Here at The Vintage Podcast, we completely understand. And so what we have done this month is to split ourselves into two. Well, we didn't have to split ourselves, we are two. Alex went to Manchester, I went to Cheltenham, and we also managed to record on London South Bank as well. This month, we focus on two authors who are transforming the stories of Shakespeare into something else entirely. Margaret Atwood has taken inspiration from Shakespeare's Tempest for her new novel, Hagseed, all part of the Hogarth Shakespeare Project. And Ian McKeown's latest novel, Nutshell, contains an unborn fetus as a narrator and takes its cue from Shakespeare's Hamlet. First of all, we're going to head up to Manchester, where Alex Clark got a chance to talk to Margaret Atwood backstage before her event. What they did together, well, it's probably better if I don't explain and you just listen. After that, you'll be able to hear Margaret speaking with Erica Wagner at the Southbank Centre, my interview with digital artist Zach Lieberman, and an extract from the audiobook of Hagseed.
1: So you're going to be doing the bits in italics. Okay. Oh, okay. You're okay. going to go. Okay. He was the Duke. He was the Duke. He was the Duke of Milan. Ooh ah uh, ha, ooh ah uh, ha. Stamp, clap, clap, stamp, snap, snap, stamp. Okay. Like that. Okay. Um, but I don't.
2: But I have. I don't
3: have a North American or Canadian accent.
2: It doesn't
1: matter. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> He was the duke.
3: He was the duke. He was the duke of Milan. so it was
1: all the things I didn't think I'd be doing. So you're Saturday doing. Evening. You're giving the beat. You're the beat. Okay. But since d- I'm going first. Oh yeah. Um, so should we do it from it the top? No, I don't no. need to do that. Okay, you don't need to do it. I, I already okay. know how to do it. I'm, okay. But you, but just right. but just I do it know. that way and take it slow and give it a beat. That's all you need. to Do Do
3: you want me to be thumping on the table out no. there? No. no. He was the Duke, he was the Duke, he was the Duke of Milan. Ooh, ah, ha. Ooh, ah, ha. Stamp, clap, clap, stamp, snap, snap, stamp. Perfect. Oh,
1: perfect. Oh, perfect. The stress. (laughs) Ooh, ah, ha. Ooh, Ooh, uh, ah, ha. Stamp, stamp, clap, 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 stamp, stamp, snap, snap, stamp. stamp. And then finally. Oh, it goes another one. Whole difference. That's not the same thing. And finally, yeah, he's the Duke, he's the Duke, he's the Duke of Milan. Stampity stamp, stampity stamp, stampity stamp, stamp. Clap,
2: clap, ha! Oh, ha! Wild
1: applause, and that's where we end. Okay, well, thank heavens for that. There'll be a stampede out of I think there will be tumultuous applause. Tumultuous.
2: start by asking um, about the genesis of Hagseed? Of course, it's part of the Hogarth uh, Shakespeare series, but why The Tempest?
1: Yes, why The Tempest? Uh, luckily, I was early on the list of people who were asked, so I got, I got my druthers, and that was my druther, because I had thought about it quite a bit before. I'd even written about Prospero before in my book on writing, which is called, oddly enough, A Writer on Writing. (laughs) It used to be called Negotiating with the Dead, but I think the D word was a bridge too far (laughs) for some people in the publishing industry. They don't like the D word. No. No, not always. Although and it's it's becoming England, the, more a writer popular, on writing yeah. is
2: that if we say it does what it says on the tin.
1: It does exactly <laughs> what it says on the tin. So it's not about my writing and it's not about how to write. It's about who are these writers, what do they think they're doing and how are they different from other kinds of artists. And uh, the p- chapter in which Prospero appears is a <clears throat> chapter on dubious magicians because of course writers are dubious magicians they create illusions and uh, are those illusions always benevolent Uh, so that's what I what I was writing about in that book and one of the other ones in that chapter is the wizard of Oz who as he says is um, a good man but a bad magician he has no real magic he's an illusionist So what you need to ask about any writer probably is, are they a good man but a bad magician? Uh, Or are they a bad man but a good magician, which is often also true. Or possibly they're good at both. But Prospero in The Tempest is very ambiguous. And therefore, he's been open to many different kinds of interpretations. It's also a play with a lot of unanswered questions. And it is the one play above all in which Shakespeare is writing a play about what he actually did all his life. He's writing a play about uh, a director-producer putting on a play with the aid of a very good special effects man called Ariel. (laughs) So that is what happens in the book. Um, A a director-producer puts on a play by means of which he hopes to get revenge on the people who have done him dirt uh, 12 years before. How did you
2: then light on the setting? Because it's one thing, it seems to me, to consider uh, Prospero and his magic in an essay. Mm. It's another to construct a whole story which you could read perfectly, plausibly, I think, without even knowing that The Tempest
1: existed. I think it helps to know that The Tempest exists, and by the end of it, you're certainly going to know that The Tempest exists, because (laughs) what they're putting (laughs) on in the prison is The Tempest. Uh, So how did I come to all of that? The epilogue has always been very intriguing to me, which Prospero steps out of the play, addresses the audience, but he's still Prospero. He's not saying, hello, I'm an actor playing Prospero. He is still Prospero and that play is about guilt and forg- and forgiveness uh, and 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 liberation because the last three words of it are set me free but it's a bit puzzling in that epilogue of what is prospero guilty why does he feel guilty and from what is he being freed now that he's outside his own play, so I wanted to explore that, and a number of the other unanswered questions in the play, such as who is caliban 's dad really <laughs> if, if you don't happen to believe that Sycorax has been impregnated by the devil, who actually <laughs>
2: <laughs> which you might choose not yes. to believe so but you then you then address um, this uh, this idea of freedom and imprisonment very directly. It's, it's
1: inevitable because uh, everybody in The Tempest at one time or another is either imprisoned uh, or being threatened with imprisonment. Um, and the only person who, who isn't really, I suppose, is Miranda because, because she was too young when they fetch up on that island to realize that it's a deprivation. I was very struck um, looking back at
2: some of the conversations that we've had before over the years. The last time we uh, talked, we spoke about The Heart Goes Last. And I happened uh, to to note down one of my questions to you then, which was uh, that when I thought about The Heart Goes Last, it really seemed to me... To be about the construction of identity within society, what are some of the prisons we build for ourselves, and how do we maintain our freedom? And so it seems to me that that, that idea of imprisonment and freedom, as Peter Kemp, of course, noted in the Sunday Times, is something that's run, it runs right through your work.
1: It goes certainly all the way back to Alias Grace, which is said in the mid 19th century. And uh, concerns of a woman who got put into a prison for her part, or possibly not her part, in a double murder that took place in 1843—a a real one. Um, so I thought about it, a lot about it then. But I was—I was then involved in a in a protest involving prisons in which the government, before this one in Canada shut down the prison farm programs uh, and a lot of people are quite upset by that because one of the things that those programs taught people was empathy, um, caring for someone other than yourself even even if that someone is a cow. Uh, so you know, it's, it's a beginning, <laughs> it's a start. Uh, so and and over the years, I actually have known people who have taught in prisons, and I've known people who have been in them. Uh, so th- it was it was interesting to me to explore the uh, the effect that studying literature and in particular studying Shakespeare can have on people. I think it's very useful if you've been deprived of that experience to to be put in a position where you are imagining what it's like to be somebody else. You know, and a lot of people have gotten to a certain point in life without ever doing that. They've never had the opportunity. And there are a number of books written by people who have taught Shakespeare in prisons and say that it's quite an amazing experience.
2: And so Felix uh, is this overthrown uh, so
1: Felix was the artistic director uh, and director of, of, a, of a festival called in the book the McHasher Weg Festival. See,
2: I didn't know how to say it. I was waiting for you to say <laughs>
1: it. <laughs> yes, it is an, an indigenous Canadian word as a lot of place names are in, in Canada and the United States. And it means fox. Um, but there is, is the festival uh, somewhat similar but not identical with the Stratford Shakespearean Festival um, and in a town somewhat similar to but not identical with the town of Stratford, Ontario which ought to have but does not have a pub called the Imp and Pig Nut. <laughs> I bet Maybe it, now. I bet it will have one now. <laughs> Maybe now. <laughs> so he's been deposed uh, because he was so immersed in the magic of putting on his place that he didn 't notice that a second in command who was who was handling all the boring mundane practical affairs like money raising and meeting with the board uh, that this guy has has hatched a plot and he is suddenly um, thrown out, so he goes off to brood in the in the sticks uh, in a in, a, in, in the closest I could get to, to Prospero's cave, <laughs> Tempest. These things do exist. They were um, early dwelling dwellings built by pioneers, and they would build them into hillsides in order con- to conserve the um, the heat. So they, there are some, and I know where one of them is. So I modeled um, Prospero's refuge on one of those, and then he gets a job. At the prison starts to teach uh, plays he teaches the ones that he thinks are really going to go at first such as Julius Caesar and, and Macbeth and Richard III things that are easily understandable uh, by people who have had something to do with crimes revenges and revenges and gang warfare
2: but the tempest, the tempest is, is a little is bit a, of a stretch. stretch
1: he really has to sell the tempest because at first they don't want to do it They think there's a fairy in it. Nobody wants to play a fairy. Uh, Nobody wants to play a young girl for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, But he finesses that. He gets them to think of Ariel not as a fairy, but as a space alien. In which case, everything that Ariel does is pretty understandable. Flies around, you know, eats flowers. It's what aliens do. (laughs) (laughs) that's okay. And when he also says that Ariel is the special effects guy, then everybody wants to be on that team. And he finesses the girl by hiring a real actress whom he has known in his previous life, and he convinces her to come in and play Miranda. And I'm not going to tell you any more about what happens. No, no, no.
4: That devious, twisted bastard Tony is Felix's own fault. Or mostly his fault. Over the past twelve years, he's often blamed himself. He gave Tony too much scope. He didn't supervise. He didn't look over Tony's nattily suited, padded, pinstriped shoulder. He didn't pick up on the clues as anyone with half a brain and two ears might have done. Worse, he trusted the evil hearted, social clambering Machiavellian foot licker. He'd fallen for the act. Let me do this chore for you. Delegate that. Send me instead. What a fool he'd been. His only excuse was that he'd been distracted by grief at that time. He'd recently lost his only child, and in such a terrible way. If only he had. If only he hadn't. If only he'd been aware. No. Too painful, still. Don't think about it, he tells himself, while doing up the buttons of his shirt. Hold it far back, pretend it was only a movie. Even if that not-to-be-thought-about event hadn't occurred, he'd most likely still have been ambushed. He'd fallen into the habit of letting Tony run the mundane end of the show, because, after all, Felix was the artistic director, as Tony kept reminding him, and he was at the height of his powers, or so they kept saying in the reviews. Therefore, he ought to concern himself with higher aims. And he did concern himself with higher aims, to create the lushest, the most beautiful, the most awe-inspiring, the most inventive, the most numinous theatrical experiences ever. To raise the bar as high as the moon, to forge from every production an experience no one attending it would ever forget, to evoke the collective indrawn breath, the collective sigh to have the audience leave after the performance, staggering a little, as if drunk. To make the Mikeshawig Festival the standard, against which all lesser theater festivals would be measured. These were no mean goals. To accomplish them, Felix had pulled together the ablest backup teams he could cajole. He hired the best, he'd inspired the best, or the best he could afford. He'd handpicked the technical gnomes and gremlins, the lighting designers, the sound technicians. He'd headhunted the most admired scenery and costume designers of his day, the ones he could persuade. All of them had to be top of the line and beyond, if possible. So he would needed money. Finding the money had been Tony's thing, a lesser thing. The money was only a means to an end, the end being transcendence. That had been understood by both of them. Felix, the cloud riding enchanter, Tony, the earth based factotum and gold grubber. It had seemed an appropriate division of functions, considering their respective talents. As Tony himself had put it, each of them should do what he was good at. Idiot, Felix berates himself. He'd understood nothing. As for the height of his powers, the height is always ominous. From the height, there's nowhere to go but down. Tony had been all too eager to liberate Felix from the rituals Felix hated, such as the attending of cocktail functions, and the buttering up of sponsors and patrons, and the hobnobbing with the board, and the facilitating of grants from various levels of government, and the writing of effective reports. That way, said Tony, Felix could devote himself to the things that really mattered such as his perceptive script notes and his cutting-edge lighting schemes and the exact timing of the showers of glitter confetti, of which he had made such genius use. And his directing, of course. Felix had always built in one or two plays a season for himself to direct. Once in a while he would even take the central part, if it was something he felt drawn to. Julius Caesar, the tartan king, Lear, Titus Andronicus, triumphs for him, every one of those roles, and every one of his productions. Or triumphs with the critics, though the playgoers and even the patrons had grumbled from time to time. The almost naked, freely bleeding Lavinia in Titus was too upsettingly graphic, they'd whined. Though, as Felix had pointed out, more than justified by the text. Why did Pericles have to be staged with spaceships and extraterrestrials instead of sailing ships and foreign countries? And why present the moon goddess Artemis with the head of a praying mantis? Even though, said Felix to the board in his own defense, it was totally fitting if you thought deeply enough about it. And Hermione's return to life as a vampire in the winter's tale that had actually been booed? Felix had been delighted, what an effect. Who else had ever done it? Where there are booze, there's life. Those escapades, those flights of fancy, those triumphs, had been the brainchild of an earlier Felix. They'd been acts of jubilation, of a happy exuberance. In the time just before Tony's coup, things had changed. They had darkened, and darkened so suddenly. Howl, howl, howl. But he could not howl.
0: So I'm here at the Royal Festival Hall on London South Bank. I'm here with Zach Lieberman, who is a digital artist. Is that the best way to describe you, Zach? Yeah, you could say that. That's one way. Yeah. <laughs> now, we're here because you've been working on a project uh, together with Margaret Atwood's novel Hagseed. And this whole podcast, we're talking about how people. Uh, reinterpret others' work. Mm-hmm. She's been reinterpreting Shakespeare. It's part of a whole series of novels that are doing that. And you've been reinterpreting her novel into a digital space. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about how you did that, You know, where you started? And-
5: sure. So I'm, yeah, as you said, I'm a media artist. I'm an artist that works with software. So I write code. And I tend to focus on animation. So I make things move and... Um, I've been doing a lot of things that involve inter- interaction and in the body. Mm-hmm. So when I was approached for this project, I, you know, read the book, really from a standpoint of you know what's visual, what what kind of images am I seeing, and um, as I was reading the book, I just all always kept coming back to this idea of the text actually coming off of the page, and I was re- reading about Felix and his journey, and I just kept imagining these different scenarios where. Um, you know, how to express what he's feeling or, you know, different scenes that are happening in the book, but, you know, from a visual perspective, Mm. from, you know, how do I take these, um, imaginations and turn them into, you know, something concrete. And really what's happening here is that people are kind of playing with my imaginations. Like I make these sketches and I kind of jam with software and then, um, always when i show these projects i kind of feel like people are just entering into my sketchbook (laughs) and so the way this works is it's um it's an installation where you come and you know it there's a camera that tracks your your movement your body and then takes your silhouette and uses that to drive the animation so in in a way you really become a performer Mm. um You know, not just a participant, but you're really kind of on stage performing, Mm. and you see that. You know, people kind of jumping in and and jamming.
0: Well, I have just, I've just had a go. Yeah. And it is, it's amazing. You are absolutely. What happens on that screen is determined exactly by what you do with your body. Yeah. Um, And it's. I've been watching other people doing it, and it's really funny to see how different people behave differently, you know, in front of that camera.
5: What one thing I really like to watch is with this kind of work is, you know, it starts with your body and then it really goes from your body to your mind and mm-hmm. back to your body and you watch that journey. So people come and, you know, they sort of see themselves. The first thing is kind of recognition. Like, mm. I come to this artwork, I see myself, you know, as part of it. Mm. And then, then you start to understand it. You know, what is this, as I, you know, gesture in a certain way, what does that do? Mm. I, you know, you start to perform and you start to see the relationships and then kind of play and exploit and, in those, those relationships.
0: And there are different ways of interacting with there? You have different sort of modes, if you like, yeah. the, the way the words are
5: rendered. Mm. Do you have a favourite? I don't have a favourite, but I just, I, I think... Um, well, maybe my favourite is, there's one which is very subtle where it really feels like you're underneath the text. Right. So there are lines of text and you see yourself only as... A kind of displacement. Mm-hmm. So you see the character, the, the letter forms are actually kind of moved away from you. So it feels like the type is actually wrapped around your body. Mm-hmm. And it's very subtle. You know, it's really, um, you know, it's not a very extreme kind of interaction, but you, re- you really feel, or I really feel when I'm using it, this very kind of physicality where mm-hmm. I, be- I feel like my body has become part of the text. Mm. And this That particular passage is about you know Felix wanting to put on the te- tempest again, and you know in a, in a way it's this kind of relationship of hi- his, you know his relationship with this text mm. and um, yeah i I don't know for me, it was re- really nice to try to take these themes and then turn them into something kind of physical so there's one scene for example uh, in the, the installation where you see yourself as a very small silhouette with just rings of type around you mm. and it was really about of solitude and feeling the sort of weight of years of frustration um and and for me it's great to see people come and kind of like feel this joy and it's i don't know it feels like it's like a response to that Mm, like mm. for me for me it's been really surprising to see what people do so that's true. Yeah. I haven't just done it. I, I know the one you mean. So you're surrounded by rings of text and mm-hmm. you're sort of hemmed in by yeah, those Yeah, it feels like a, almost like a weight. Yeah. You know? So you kind of, if you lift your arms up, you see the, you know, you've, the type is like weighing on you. Yeah, well, it, it's been fascinating
0: to, to play with that text in a completely different way. So yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for yeah. telling me a bit more about it. Yeah, thank you. I definitely think that Margaret Atwood teaching Alex Clark how to rap is my new favourite thing. Anyway, moving on. Whilst all that was going on, I had headed across to Cheltenham, where Ian McEwan was talking as part of the Cheltenham Literary Festival. He spoke there about his latest novel, Nutshell, and after that you'll be able to hear an extract from its audiobook. Hello, hello.
3: Thank you all for coming and, and welcome, and thank you to Waterstones for, for sponsoring this event. Ian McEwen, thank you. Thank you for writing this wonderful, funny, extraordinary, entertaining, insightful book.
6: The least I could do.
3: <laughs> it's, it's your 17th, is it?
6: I'm, I'm Are you sure? sure? On that. Do yeah. you know? No. <laughs> uh, round about there. Uh,
3: yeah. But it's quite a significant departure, isn't it? I mean, it's not based on research like a lot of your earlier work. Or is it, perhaps, a return to your very early work?
6: Well, it is a bit of a break from going to ask experts of one kind or another about uh, theoretical physics or neurosurgery and so on. It was such a pleasure not to do that for once and stay at my desk. Uh, It does connect a little bit with my 22-year-old self of the early 70s. I wrote stories with crazy narrators, psychopaths. Uh, I wrote a story in which... um, Uh, an ape uh, who's having an affair, a love affair with uh, a woman novelist who's struggling with her second book, as I was at the time. (laughs) Uh, So it was like the ape on my shoulder. Uh, And various other crazy um, adolescents and weirdos. Um, This one, I mean, I don't think he's a weirdo, my fetus. In fact, he's a sort of average fetus. Um, and if you've ever met a fetus or been one um, you know that they're very trustworthy uh, so unlike my previous narrators this narrator uh, is a reliable narrator uh, you can trust that he's trying to tell you everything that's true
3: it has the most wonderful first line so here I am upside down in a woman and I, and I wondered if it all just flowed from there or or were there a lot of changes from from that very first line?
6: It was something of a gift, Georgina. I I was at a very long, boring meeting uh, that was in a a foreign language, which I'm not going to identify. Uh, And I had to keep uh, an expression of delighted attention on my face for hours on end. And I did what any sane person would do, that I daydreamed and thought, vaguely about what I might be writing next. And this sentence just came to mind rather like a sort of ticker tape. Uh, So here I am upside down in a woman. Uh, I wrote it down and then did nothing because I've always felt that hesitation is a very important part of creative process. Uh, Anyone who gets writer's block just needs to rename it as hesitation and in fact, Writer's Block then vanishes. It's important to do that. Uh, and it really provided me the whole given, the donne of, of, of the entire novel. And it was simply a matter, some months later, of sitting down and finding a voice for this person and finding out what he was doing. And I just happened to have reread Hamlet, and these two thoughts, ideas, got braided together Mm. and I thought well it's about time someone told the story of Hamlet from the point of view of a fetus Um, (laughs) and uh, there was a ready made plot so we have no anxieties of giving anything away this evening (laughs)
3: So the the Hamlet echo was always the intention because there's a a bit of Macbeth in there too.
6: There's a little bit of Macbeth because a murder is plotted uh, and some kind of sense of the deed, if it were done, best done quickly, uh, and uh, the sense of things going wrong uh, also stalks this plot. So Mm. there's quite a lot of Shakespeare. Uh, Lines from the sonnets intrude. Uh, But there's quite a lot of other English poetry in there, too. Mm, mm. uh, It's drenched in uh, the way our language has been made. And uh, as we all know, people who've never seen a Shakespeare play, never read one, often are citing the lines because they've fallen into our our laps. Uh, Brilliant aposous that have become clichés in Mm, many mm. respects. So it was really to honour that sense of what he means to us, the way he has uh, helped us, uh, the way he's enriched the language, drenched it, really, uh, that I wanted to to celebrate. Mm. Go ahead. His
3: father is a poet, uh, and and you say that uh, if, if it doesn't come quickly, then it shouldn't come at all. Uh, did the book come quickly for you, and is that how you write? Do you, do you subscribe to that, the, the Mozart way, as you call it?
6: No. Actually, I, I remember that uh, from a brilliant conversation in a Saul Bellow novel in which one character was saying, the only art worth taking any notice of is the art that comes instantly and flows freely and there's no struggle. And I thought, what nonsense. I mean, yes, Mozart sort of simply dictated onto the page. Uh, Beethoven, on the other hand, you know, struggled and, and, and we're the beneficiaries of that struggle. So I think the generalisation is completely bankrupt. I mean, uh, I don't hold by it at all. In this case, no, it took me a long time. Quite, it's a short novel, it took me 18 months doing very little else. All along the way, I kept thinking, am I going completely nuts uh, doing this? Uh, will I get away with it? Everything hangs on the first sentence, really. If you cannot believe you're being addressed by a fetus in his 38th or 39th week, uh, then that's the time to stop reading <laughs> uh, and, and go and read some something else. But my worry was, would anyone cross that line with me? Uh, that, uh, so, I, The other thing I, I was worried about as I proceeded was that I was enjoying it too much and I think that's always a a bad sign Uh, you can get carried away with something that appeals to you might not appeal to anyone else so I was pursued by these doubts all the way through and kept pausing to think maybe this is just a short story uh, maybe I should back off and do something else uh, but I, I did have fun, and I don't think that's always a good idea. When I read... Julian Barnes tells me this is not the case, that, uh, and it's just a, a myth, that Flaubert wept over the death of Madame Bovary. Well, let's assume he did weep over the death. That's a very bad sign. <laughs> you need that chip of ice. You need a little distance. And I, I kept worrying that I, my chip of ice had melted.
3: The, uh, the soliloquies... Uh really allow you to to meditate on on the state of the world. Uh, It's dusk in the second age of reason uh, and and that that whole wonderful passage that you write, really about about the fact that we're all doomed. Are
6: we? Well, I think he takes, like most foetuses would, a fairly sensible view on this. Um, He has to speculate about the world he's going to join All his information is derived from podcasts and news bulletins. It's reasonable of him to hear both the bad news but gradually build up another picture too, which runs parallel to it, of the good news. So uh, he hears a very, very gloomy lecture uh, late at night uh, on the BBC. Terrorism, the possibility of nuclear... ...exchange, uh, climate change, all the things that press in on us, uh, he hears. But he's also able to say, uh, people are living longer, uh, uh, worldwide global poverty has dropped um, by um, extraordinary amounts since the early 80s. Fewer children are dying in childbirth. All all the figures that we, we have... How does he make of a sensible synthesis of these two things? They run in parallel. Uh, they're both true. Even as we speak, utter misery and disaster is unfolding in Aleppo. But even as we speak, people are here celebrating literature. The things run side by side. Mm. So he's really just got to juggle with with this information.
3: The, the twin natures, the clever and the infantile, as, as you put it.
6: Yes, infantile is one of the words he uses a great deal as a sort of curse. Um, he, who's not even born yesterday... Um, ..he's particularly peeved by the BBC World Service, which he thinks
7: <laughs> has really gone downhill. Um. My father comes by the house from time to time and I'm overjoyed. Sometimes he brings her smoothies from his favourite place on Judd Street. He has a weakness for these glutinous confections that are supposed to extend his life. I don't know why he visits us, for he always leaves in mists of sadness. Various of my conjectures have proved wrong in the past, but I've listened carefully, and for now I'm assuming the following. That he knows nothing of Claude, Remains moonishly in love with my mother, hopes to be back with her one day soon, still believes in the stories she has given him that the separation is to give them each time and space to grow and renew their bonds. That he is a poet without recognition, and yet he persists. That he owns and runs an impoverished publishing house, and has seen into print the first collections of successful poets' household names. And even one Nobel laureate. When their reputations swell, they move away like grown children to larger houses. That he accepts the disloyalty of poets as a fact of life and, like a saint, delights in the plaudits that vindicate the Ken Cross Press. That he's saddened rather than embittered by his own failure in verse. He once read aloud to Trudy and me a dismissive review of his poetry. It said that his work was outdated, stiffly formal, too beautiful. But he lives by poetry, still recites it to my mother, teaches it, reviews it, conspires in the advancement of younger poets, sits on prize committees, promotes poetry in schools, writes essays on poetry for small magazines, has talked about it on the radio. Trudy and I heard him once in the small hours. He has less money than Trudy, "'and far less than Claude. "'He knows by heart a thousand poems. "'This is my collection of facts and postulates. "'Hunched over them, like a patient philatelist, "'I've added some recent items to my set. "'He suffers from a skin complaint, psoriasis, "'which has rendered his hands scaly, hard and red. "'Trudy hates the look and feel of them "'and tells him he should wear gloves. "'He refuses.' He has a six-month lease on three mean rooms in Shoreditch, is in debt, is overweight, and should exercise more. Just yesterday I acquired, still with the stamps, a penny black. The house my mother lives in, and I in her, the house where Claude visits nightly, is a Georgian pile on boastful Hamilton Terrace, and was my father's childhood home. In his late twenties, Just as he was growing his first beard, and not long after he married my mother, he inherited the family mansion. His dear mother was long dead. All the sources agree the house is filthy. Only clichés serve it well, peeling, crumbling, dilapidated. Frost has sometimes glazed and stiffened the curtains in winter. In heavy rains the drains, like dependable banks, return their deposit with interest. In summer, like bad banks, they stink. But look, here in my tweezers is the rarest piece of all, the British Guiana. Even in such a rotten state, these six thousand aching square feet will buy you seven million pounds. Most men, most people, would never permit a spouse to eject them from under their childhood eaves. John Cairncross is different. Here are my reasonable inferences. Born under an obliging star, eager to please, too kind, too earnest, he has nothing of the ambitious poet's quiet greed. He really believes that to write a poem in praise of my mother, her eyes, her hair, her lips, and come by to read it aloud will soften her, make him welcome in his own house. But she knows that her eyes are nothing like the Galway turf by which he intended very green, and, since she has no Irish blood, the line is anemic. Whenever she and I listen, I sense in her slowing heart a retinal crust of boredom that blinds her to the pathos of the scene, a large, large large-hearted man pleading his cause without hope in the unmodish form of a sonnet. A thousand may be hyperbole. Many of the poems my father knows are long, like those famed creations of bank employees, the cremation of Sam McGee and the wasteland. Trudy continues to tolerate the occasional recitation. For her, a monologue is better than an exchange, preferable to another turn round the unweeded garden of their marriage.
0: So there we go. Two authors clearly having an awful lot of fun playing about with Shakespeare. And it really comes off the page with both of those books. You can see that they're having loads of fun. Anyway, that is all for this month's podcast. We will be breaking new ground next month as well. I can't tell you too much now. You'll just have to tune in to find out. But we hope that you've enjoyed this month's. If you're listening on iTunes, please do leave a rating. And if you're listening on SoundCloud, feel free to leave a comment. And we look forward to taking you on another audio journey next month.